Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. Beginning in verse 1. This is God's Word, Revelation 12, verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given to the, given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened up its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do commit ourselves to you now as we stand before your word that you would cause our ears to hear it. Lord, our hearts are, are, are easily distracted. We don't hear well. Would you, by your Spirit, accomplish what we are unable to do and cause us to hear your word? Would you apply it to our hearts? Help us to see wonderful things from it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, with all the visions that we've encountered in the book of Revelation so far, this has to be the most vivid, in my opinion, that we have thus seen. It sounds more like something from... Tolkien than it does from what you might expect from Scripture. Dragons and floods and 
a woman and stars and diadems and all of this other stuff that is really, really difficult to understand. But this is not part of John's imagination. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ as was handed to John. John is simply the recorder here. And what Jesus is doing is painting a picture. It's an incredible picture of redemptive history that we might see what has really happened and what will happen. He uses a picture here, multiple pictures, not only to show us what's happening on earth, but also what is happening in the spiritual realm. And let's understand that apart from Revelation, and by Revelation I don't mean the book of Revelation, but I mean all of Scripture, God's Word revealed to us, how would we know what is happening in the spiritual realm? We can't see it with our eyes. So this is a great benefit to us to be able to peek behind the veil, so to speak, and to see what is really going on. In the book of Ephesians, Paul talks about the spiritual battle that we're in, the spiritual realm that exists, the reality of the spiritual world. And in doing so, he offers this explanation, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The war that we're engaged in is a spiritual war. We see that, I think, very clearly in today's passage, that there's a spiritual realm that, apart again, apart from God's revealed word, we would not know what was going on. And yet we see from the description here that the spiritual realm affects the physical realm. It is revealed into the physical realm. And we know from this passage and others that the physical realm that we're in can have effects in the spiritual realm. We're called to pray. We are engaged in both. So how do we make sense of all of this? And indeed, how do we engage? Well, we go back to Ephesians 6. I mean, there we have the very clear description of the spiritual battle equipment that we are given to fight with, the armor of God. And we need the armor of God. But at the same time, and and I don't think we're in danger of this in our local church, although I don't know where all of you stand. I think the pendulum tends to swing one way or the other. We tend to, in one sense, we, we kind of forget that there's a spiritual reality, that we're involved in spiritual warfare, and we think more in terms of just being comfortable in life. We, we really don't think about the spiritual dimension. Or the other side of the pendulum is if we swing it too far the other way, we see a demon behind every rock. So every bad thing that happens in life, there's some spiritual attack behind it. So I think we have to be careful not to go to either extreme. Understanding there is a spiritual reality and a spiritual battle that we are engaged in. Categories that help us with this are that we fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil. We talk about this a lot. And I think those are helpful categories to think about the spiritual realm, that how it engages with our lives, that our heart, we're spiritual beings. Things become, even the physical stuff becomes spiritual. You know, there's a physical computer that's live streaming our service right now, and I can tell you that it's physical. But when it doesn't work, it becomes a spiritual matter because I get really mad (laughs) and frustrated. Or whoever's operating it, Mike never does, but other people might. And, and so you see how the physical plays into the spiritual. And it becomes that quickly. The world, 
the flesh and the devil. There are times where we are indeed up against Satan's schemes, where he comes and attacks us. There may be times where we're actually just in battle against the world who hates us because it hates our Savior, or times where we are just in battle against our very own hearts. Summertime in Florida, we're going to the store in the afternoon, and our number one objective is to get that front row parking space because we know the chances of rain are high. And as we're pulling into the parking spot, we see it, and we're going for it, and we're about to turn in, and that obnoxious person coming across the wrong way cuts right in front of us and pulls right in. Was that Satan? Was that an attack of the evil one? Or or, or maybe it was someone who saw our Jesus bumper sticker and they hate Christians and so they did it just to spite us. Or was it just our own self-absorbed hearts wanting not to be inconvenienced by having to pull out our umbrellas? Well, we don't know. (laughs) We don't know. My argument is it's the latter. <laughs> uh, that's, that's really where the rubber meets the road. But we don't always get told what is going on in the spiritual realm. And while that is a silly example, it does illustrate the more serious stuff of life. That is, we don't always know who is behind what. Whether it is a direct attack of Satan, whether it's the oppression of the world who hates us, or our own desperately wicked hearts. Yet the strategy that we're called to engage is the same. Put on the whole armor of God. I wish we had time to unpack that. If you're not familiar with the armor of God or if you've forgotten what it looks like to put that on, I would encourage you to look at Ephesians 6 this afternoon and take to heart what it looks like to dress in that battle gear. It's very, very practical. Here's what I want us to keep in mind today, though. Even though we may not understand what is happening in every difficulty we face, Ephesians 6, and here today, Romans 12, makes it clear that there is a spiritual reality. And while the lid blowing off the blender when we're trying to make a smoothie in the morning and creating an incredible mess across the kitchen, or our stepping in a piece of gum, or getting a flat tire may or may not be spiritual warfare at all, our response to these things is spiritual. And of course, our response to more serious things. Sometimes I wonder, though, if it's not the little stuff, actually, that becomes the greater problems. You know, when the big stuff happens, we get serious, and we face it more seriously. It's often the little stuff that surprises us and leads us to respond in incredible anger or fear or anxiety. We live in a fallen world. I say it's broken and wrecked by the fall. That comes from a song, I'm pretty sure. You know, I have my little pet phrases, and that's one of them. I don't know what song it is. I should look that up sometime. But our world is broken and wrecked by the fall. It's not the way it's supposed to be. Things are not going to go according to our expectations or wishes. Tree limbs rot and fall on cars. Mud causes us to slip and get dirty. We've all experienced spilled milk. We live in a fallen world. And while I don't want you to see a demon behind every mishap in life, I do want you to be aware that Satan is a lion who wants to devour. He wants us to lose it when these things happen, to explode in anger, to scream in defeat, to wail in fear. Since the garden, he is the one, the orchestrator, the prince of the power of the air, the leader 
in the plan to vandalize God's good creation. And honestly, his mode of operation hasn't changed very much. He's not very creative. We're going to talk more and more about this as we get further into Revelation. Satan is an imitator. He is a, he is a counterfeit. And he is a vandal. Did God really say? That was his first question when he came to Eve. Did God really say, questioning God's truth? And then after the conversation went on, and I paraphrase here, but he, he, he says to her, basically, God isn't good and doesn't want good for you. And isn't that exactly where our hearts go when life doesn't go according to plan? We think to ourselves, God doesn't love me. He must not. How could he ever have let this happen? How could he be good? Satan has been saying and doing the same thing ever since. In today's passage, we set, are set before us this clear vision of the spiritual realm, but with it, the clear hope that Christ has conquered the evil one. And yet, in that conquering, Satan remains somewhat loose. We get the explanation of what that means, actually, in this passage. We're going to look at it today. But he's on a leash. His days are numbered, and he knows it. His time is short, verse 12 tells us. For us, the good news is that he is ultimately defeated, and that defeat is coming when Christ returns. The bad news is he's still on a leash, and he wants to do as much damage as he can. So we must be alert and aware, but not full of fear. We must run to the battle, not from the battle. So this is what we need to hear and know today. Look beginning in verse 1. We see John describe two signs that appear to him. He describes them in the realm of heaven. So he's looking in heaven at this point. His, his, his perspective will move to earth shortly. Now this is a vision with symbols and characters of events describing what has happened. It is one that is not only vivid, but it's troubling. It's, it's not comfortable. There's a woman who is about to give birth. It describes her in the pain of childbirth. This is a, and it, I mean, I can't speak from experience, since I'm always careful when I say anything about childbirth, but it's, it's bad. And all the mothers who have experienced it look at me like, what's he going to say next? It's bad. It's, it's horribly painful. And yet it's also, it makes the mother vulnerable. But no more vulnerable, though, in this image is that of the child coming into uh, to be born, presented with this hideous dragon sitting, waiting to devour the newborn baby. That's not a story you read to your kids before bed. A terrible picture. But when we understand what the symbols mean, it makes sense. Before we do that, let's remind us ourselves where we are in the book of Revelation. We've just passed the middle. So we're starting the second half. And in this portion, John begins to take our focus to see what is happening in the spiritual realm more and more. And he does this using these incredible symbols, pictures, imagery, because we don't have the privilege of seeing the spiritual realm. We don't have eyes to see what's going on. And so this imagery is there to help us in our imaginations as we read the words to understand what is actually happening. I hope you understand the distinction there. To say that they're symbols, 
doesn't mean things, they don't represent what is true. We're not talking allegorically, we're saying symbolically, they are describing what is truly happening. So while there isn't a dragon in the sky that's sweeping a third of the stars down, right? we know that's not physically possible for the stars, these gigantic balls of fire to land on the earth, right? That can't happen. They would burn the earth up before they even got close. He's describing, though, something that did happen. We'll talk about that more in a minute. So remember what is being done here through these descriptions. First, the woman is described as clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. And we immediately know who that is and what that represents, right? Because we just studied Genesis. It was only about a year ago. At the end of Genesis, we read the story of Joseph. Joseph had some dreams. In the second dream, in Genesis 37.9, he says this to his family, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. So what do the symbols represent in Joseph's dream? Well, the sun represented Jacob, the moon, his wife, and the stars, Jacob's sons, or Joseph's brothers. There were 11 of them. Where do we get the 12th one? Joseph, right? This is the 12 sons of Jacob, what would become the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, there are other passages that use sun, moon, and star language to speak of Israel. We won't go there. I think this one is clear enough because the, the, the language is so directly uh, it's clear that John had this in mind when he used this as a symbol. So the woman, at the very least, represents Old Testament Israel. However, as we move through the narrative, we find that the woman begins to represent not Old Testament Israel, but the church. And it's the same symbol. So, you know, the, the, the teaching that God has two people or two plans of salvation or that there's two administrations in the old covenant, the nation of Israel, the new covenant, the church, the idea that the church replaces Israel, any of those thoughts are, are off. The church is the fulfillment of Israel. The church is the people of God. And what we read of in the Old Testament, the people of God were the people of God. We know not all of Israel was true Israel. Paul helps us understand this in the New Testament when he speaks to it. But we know it simply from reading the Old Testament, right? There was a remnant. Why was there a remnant? Because not all of Israel were truly believers. And so here John does, he's really helping us see that there isn't a distinction between Israel and the church, but the same image here, the woman, represents both. The people of God under the old covenant, the people of God under the new covenant. We could simply say that the woman represents the people of God. Just as Abraham believed God and his faith was credited to him as righteousness, so are all God's children his through faith alone. God has one people, they're saved one way by faith alone, had always been that way, and it will always be that way. That is the way God works. The second sign is this great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. None of the kids are over here coloring today, but I was hoping I would get, Collins, a great picture of a red dragon. So maybe next week you could work on a great picture of it. Because, I mean, seriously, 
seven heads, seven, seven diadems, ten horns. be a pretty cool picture. Well, we already know who this is because we've read the text, right? We know this is Satan. We don't have to work very hard. We're told that's who it is. Seven heads, seven diadems, number seven representing completeness. This is, he's the chief. He's the leader. He is the prince of evil, the prince of the power of the air. That's who Satan is. The ten horns are here used to take us back to, uh, to, to Daniel's prophecy where we see the beast, the horns. Horns are almost universally used as symbols of power uh, in Scripture. And so here there's this picture of complete power. And I think the connection back to Daniel is that we see uh, Satan's use of kingdoms of this world. Those, that's what the beasts represented. Those four, four beasts represent, represented the kingdoms of this world. And Satan's, again, his mode of operation hasn't changed much. He continues to work through using the powers of the kingdoms and the entities in this world through which to dominate. So we're not to understand this as, as this, this cosmic event that happened between a, a woman and a dragon, right? Right? So that's, that's not the event. Those are symbols to help us understand what did really occur. So, so don't, don't imagine the dragon knocking down stars and the woman with childbirth, but it did describe something that really happened. Satan really has come after the people of God. The woman here really is the people of God, and from her comes the Messiah. That's the next thing that we see. We know this really happened. So from the community of believers comes the promised one. Look in verse 5. The male child who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. This comes from Psalm 2. And we didn't read it this week because we just read it last week in our worship. So I didn't want to repeat it. But that Messianic Psalm speaks of Jesus very clearly as the one who would rule with a rod of iron. And immediately John describes him as being caught up to God and to his throne which is here describing the ascension of Jesus after his death and resurrection. This is a very quick description. Theologians call this, uh, they, they use the term telescope or telescoping uh, to describe this. Uh, it doesn't go through all the details. It doesn't describe the son as growing up and entering ministry at the age of 30 and you know, three and a half years, three years and dying on the cross and ra- you know, being raised from the dead and then ascending. It just, it's a very quick. He's caught up to the throne. We know who this is, of course. And we can go all the way back in his lineage. This is, he's born of the son of David, right? But we, even further back, we can go back to Genesis 3 and see that this is the one who is the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. That's what's going on here. That's what's being carried out. After the birth of the son and after he is in heaven, the woman flees to the wilderness where she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. And you remember this number, right? We've seen this before. We saw this in chapter uh, 11. We saw this, uh, um, we're going to see this again later on. It's either written as 42 months, three and a half years, or time, times, times and a half. uh, Or it's written as 1,260 days. It's all the same time frame if you do the math. Um, We talked about that a couple weeks ago. This is an image for the church. Just as the two witnesses endured the same time frame, another image for the church here. We're talking about the people of God. So the woman represents the people of God in both covenants, old and new. We see here that she has a place prepared for her by God, that she would be nourished and taken care of. And this image of her in the wilderness is one that certainly resonates with us. We don't 
Maybe we don't always recognize how God is taking care of us, but we should. We are strangers and aliens in this world. This world is not our home, but we haven't been abandoned. I mean, you think of the means of grace that God has given us. You think of just this, what we're doing right now. That God did not leave us to our own devices to get through life, but He has given us His body, the church. He's called us to come weekly and worship together to do this very thing. He's given us His Spirit by which to empower us and to guide us, to convict us of sin, and to move us to grow in holiness. We need the manna that the Old Testament people of God received in the wilderness. The Word of God, the means of grace that nourishes us in the journey along. We are headed toward the true promised land. Not a land that would fade, a temporal land flowing with milk and honey, but a true, never fading place. The new heavens and the new earth that will one day be realized. In a sense, we're in our own spiritual exodus. As we wait for the return of Christ and the consummation of His kingdom, we're waiting to be delivered. In verses 7 to 12, the story continues to unfold. We see in this image the heavenly warfare that takes place where Satan is handed a great defeat. And in it is this portrayed the war in the angelic realm with the archangel Michael fighting against the dragon and his angels. And while this literally could have happened, we don't know where this is described to us, what it represents clearly did happen. And that is something... Um, categorically changed for Satan in the heavenly realm. Satan is cast out of heaven. So this is describing not here the fall of Satan when, when Lucifer became Satan, although the, the, the allusion to the sweeping of the third of the stars, may some, there's some difference of opinion about whether that does or not. But here it specifically says that he's thrown out of heaven and that this being cast down to earth is accomplished, look in verse 11, by the blood of the Lamb. What has happened in the world, in the physical realm, the death and resurrection of Jesus, has uh, affected, <laughs> that seems like such a weak word, <laughs> uh, but it has affected what has happened in the spiritual realm. It is by the blood of the Lamb. And so what is being described here as happening, death, resurrection of Jesus, is, 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 is altering something. Now, we know we're dealing with Satan. Verse 9, he's identified that ancient serpent. That takes us back, of course, to the garden, Genesis uh, uh, 2 and 3, and, and how one day his uh, head would be crushed by the seed of the woman, uh, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. And then the further description in verse 10 is, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before God. Satan's access as accuser is altered because of the conquering of the Lamb. How is that so? Well, when we look in the Old Testament, we're familiar particularly with the story of Job, where Satan went and sought God's permission uh, but you might also think in Zechariah 3 of the story of Joshua the high priest where Satan stood and accused Joshua. What could Satan accuse people of? Well, any time, but particularly before Christ came and died. 
Well, how were they saved? They were saved by faith alone. But it was the faith in what God said He would do. It was a promise, a promise that hadn't been realized yet, in that Christ would come and die and atone for the sins. And so Satan could, in essence, say to God, how can you let these unholy people in your presence? Now, this isn't because Satan loves justice or loves God or loves his holiness. Satan hates God, and this is why he accuses the brethren all day and all night, it says. But that access has changed because the son that was born has been caught up to the throne in heaven. And there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Jesus is seated on the throne to make sure of that. No accusation about you can stand because of what Christ has done. Because of the conquering of the blood of the Lamb, no accusation can stand. There is no condemnation. So Satan and his demons are now limited. This is what we could talk about describing him being on a leash. He is cast down to earth. He is defeated at the cross. So that in this time frame that we are now in, until the final judgment when he is cast into hell eternally, he is like a rabid dog. He can run around, but he's on a leash. And he knows this. Verse 12 makes this clear. He knows his time is short. And what does that do to us when we know our time is short? (laughs) It just makes us all the more agitated. So when we get to the 17th verse and we see that he's described as furious, it makes perfect sense. He is ready to devour because he is furious. He's a vandal. While he can't snatch us from the hand of God, he is trying to do as much damage and harm as he feasibly can on the leash that he is, to deceive, to lure, and to vandalize as much as possible. My point with all of this is to say, spiritual warfare is real. Satan wants to devour you. And it can come in surprising ways. What are the cracks in your life through which he could infest and infect you? Where are you complacent and indifferent so that he might subtly work to weaken your faith? In what ways have you let down your guard through which he might have an effect to rattle your cage in an attempt to destroy your faith? That's what he wants to do. Satan wants to destroy your faith. He wants to destroy you. God's not going to let him, but the battle is real. And he is ravenous. These are sobering questions all of us should consider. None of us are immune to the spiritual warfare that we face. So we are to be on guard against his temptations. But also, we have to remember that Satan remains an accuser. He no longer has that access because Jesus stands there and says there is no condemnation for those who are mine. But he still accuses us to us. That's why we sing in that song... um, Behold, uh, is it behold the Lamb of God or before the throne? Before the throne of God. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. What does Satan use in that description? When he tells me of the guilt within. Satan often uses parts of the truth to deceive and to accuse us. Are we guilty? Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, we are. We're guilty. So what do we sing then? Well, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. So how do we fight? We continue to preach the gospel to ourselves to remember the truth of the finished work of Christ on our behalf, our perfect, spotless righteousness, the great, unchangeable I am, the King of glory and of grace. One with Him, I cannot die. We preach the gospel to ourselves. We remember the gospel. We cling to it. And we proclaim the gospel to others that the word of our testimony might stand against the many attacks of the devil. Look in that last paragraph, verses 13 to 17. We see now the dragon begins to focus all of his attention on the woman. Satan is pursuing the people of God to do as much harm as he can. And just as he is hell-bent on destroying her, she is pictured as being carried away on eagle's wings into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. Again, it's that same time frame we've seen before. We're still talking about the church here, written as 1,260 days, 42 months, three and a half years. It's that same time frame. We saw it in verse 6. We saw it in chapter 11. Uh, with the two witnesses, this is a symbol here of the church. And again, this is not a new event. It's redescribing what we saw earlier, that there's the, God, just as God took his people through the wilderness, he's taking his church through the wilderness, but he doesn't leave her. He nourishes her. He cares for her. He protects her as he leads her along to the true promised land. And as we've said before, you can imagine Satan's fury, how it would grow, knowing that his time is short, knowing that he can't ultimately destroy her. And verse 15 tells us that he continues to try. I think that although this is one description in this use of the, the, the picture of a flood, I think this is, is, is better understood as the ongoing attempts of Satan. This isn't just a one-time thing. That This is what he continues to do. And the picture of the flood coming from his mouth really captures lies, deception. It also incorporates false teaching. We saw this in the, in the, in the seven churches as the letter began. Uh, we saw it in Philadelphia and Smyrna, right? There were two cities where uh, John, as he addresses them, mentions, what's really the, the words of Jesus addressing the churches. Uh, Jesus addresses them and mentions specifically synagogues of Satan that Satan has these footholds in places and he uses these people to persecute the people of God. And those persecutors use lies and deception. They use false teaching. They use accusation. Well, just as Satan, though, is a vandal, he is also an imitator and a counterfeit. And as I mentioned before, we're going to see that more and more as we move through Revelation. But here's just one example. Here, Satan is pictured through persecution, through accusation and deception, trying to bring death and harm and damage to the people of God through a river of lies. That's the image that's before us here. And if we zoom ahead to Revelation 22, what do we see? We see a river of life flowing from the throne of God that represents what Christ has accomplished on our behalf, a river that brings to all that it touches hope and healing and life. Satan is a counterfeit. Jesus is the real thing. 
Well, by the end of the chapter, we see again he is furious. Persecution, suffering will continue throughout the church age against all those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. We know this. We've seen it in Revelation. We see it around the world as we read about the persecuted church, as we even experience things in our own lives. We know this is true. And yet it's important once again to recognize Satan's ultimate defeat. He is furious because he knows he cannot ultimately destroy the people of God. He hates God and thus he hates all who put their trust in him. Yet he is ultimately defeated because we know that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come our powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What's left? Nothing. Nothing, including Satan. So when you despair, when he tempts you to despair, you remember there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. When we think of suffering, we, we typically, our minds go to that most intense suffering that of the persecuted church around the world. We think of not only persecution, but we think of martyrdom, and that's where our minds should go. We've talked about this uh, quite a bit, and we'll always talk about this, our need to pray. That's why the prayer guides are out there. I encourage you to grab one. It's a helpful tool uh, on your way out to pray for those who are suffering. And we know that there are many who are suffering and even giving up their lives for the name of Christ. But there are other types of suffering, and there are sufferings that we may even face one day before it becomes anything that dramatic, and we need to be prepared. We need to be prepared to stand for Christ, to let the word of His testimony shine in our lives. One example that I thought of is the, the, the country where we used to live. We had friends there that told us this story. I want to tell it to you there in their own words. They write, my father who was renting a room while working in another town, when, a religious, when the religious people there discovered he attended the evangelical church, they then approached his landlady and advised her to refuse to provide accommodation for him and send him away. By God's grace, she did not do so because as she told them, he was a good man, she put good in quotes, I love that, paying his rent promptly every month. This lady and her family eventually became lifelong friends of my parents, exhibiting great respect for their beliefs. What does this make us think of? Matthew 5, where Jesus says, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. While there are times to stand against powers and, 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 uh, and, and, and take great stands that are what we think of as more dramatic, most of the opportunities that are before us are just the day-in and day-out ways that we live our lives. And unfortunately, while we're really good at taking a stand in a dramatic way, at least my own experience, I really stink at the day-in and day-out. How do we live? Well... It is in doing all things without grumbling and disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life. Without grumbling or disputing, I could stop there, at least as far as my life is concerned, and focus that gives me enough to work on right there for the week ahead. 
without grumbling or disputing. It is, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It is to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in the end, if we do face persecution, it is like Peter and John who rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. This is not to be done, nor can it be done in our own strength or wisdom, but is only done as we hold fast to the testimony of Jesus and walk by the power of his spirit at work within us. So may we, as a result, be filled with courage to not run from the battle, but to run to the battle, because we know that the enemy is defeated, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. We have not to live in fear Our God is our help in every age. He is our hope for years to come. He will be our guard while troubles last and is our eternal home. Let's pray. Father, things crop up in our minds as we consider our lives and how we are to live in the spiritual realm and the difficulties that we face. And it can be overwhelming. And so I pray today that you would calm and comfort and soothe our hearts with the message of the gospel. That in Christ, Satan is defeated. In Christ, our sins have been paid for. And in Christ, we are counted righteous that we may stand. Lord, would you comfort our hearts with this so that we would not only be ready to stand on that day when we are called home, but that we would stand now on the testimony of Jesus. Not on our own testimony, not in our own strength or power. May we resist the temptation to do that, but may we stand on the testimony of Jesus that we might shine as lights in a dark world. May we be faithful as employees and neighbors and friends. May we show mercy And may we be kind that we may give an opportunity to give an answer for the hope that is within us. Lord, may we stand each and every day. And when we stand against resistance, Lord, may we continue to stand. Would you give us strength in those times when they come? Lord, help us. We can't do this on our own. You are our help. We look to you alone. We pray all this according to your will and for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.